The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. a joy to turn with you to God's Word this morning as I reflect on your calling uh, to me to be senior pastor. Undoubtedly the greatest blessing you've given me is the opportunity to preach God's Word to you on a regular basis. And of course this morning is a little bit unique. Uh, We're not working through a a book of the Bible at at this point. Uh, I'm called to preach a a sermon on a particular text. And the danger was something like that as they start to think, well, what do I want to say to the congregation uh, this morning? And of course, the whole point of preaching is not what I want to say to you. It's what does God have to say to us from His Word. And so as I was praying about what to preach this morning, I decided to look at John 17, which is Jesus' prayer for His people right before He goes to the cross. And these words in John 17, which are called by many Jesus' greatest prayer, express Jesus' desire for his disciples and for his church. And since this is Jesus' desire for us, you could say since this is our master's prayer for us, I wanted to spend our time this morning uh, hoping that these verses would shape who we are and how we live as God's people. Now, just looking at a few verses this morning, and since we're jumping into the middle of Jesus' prayer, let me just briefly summarize what Jesus has prayed so far when we arrive at verse 16. In the first eight verses of his prayer, Jesus describes how he has already accomplished the main mission that God has sent him to to do. Namely, he has spoken God's word to God's people so that Every one whom the Father has given him have come to know that he is God and that Jesus is the Messiah whom God has sent. Jesus has accomplished this task. But now Jesus says, I'm ready to leave this world. I'm ready to depart from this world and come back to be with you, Father. And my disciples are going to remain in the world. And so for the next seven verses, Jesus prays that God would guard his people, that he would protect them, that he would keep them from the evil one. And it's on the heels of this prayer, this request, that the Father would keep his people from the evil one that we pick up in verse 16. Would you read with me just these four verses? John chapter 17, verses 16 through 19. Jesus prays, They, that is my disciples, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. God, this is your word 
This is your word and this is your prayer for us as your people. So I pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would take these words, apply them to our hearts, encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, as you know we need this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I know that many in our congregation have family members, sons, maybe daughters, cousins, siblings who have served in the U.S. military in various capacities. And even if you don't have a family member who has served in the military, many of you will be familiar with a, a military commissioning ceremony. A commissioning ceremony is a powerful moment uh, when a cadet is, is commissioned as an officer in the United States military. And as part of the, the commissioning ceremony, while the person who's been training and preparing for months or, or years to serve, they finally take the oath, the oath to protect the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic to faithfully discharge their duties as an officer. And as they take that oath, their orders are then read. Their task is then given to them. And then often a family member or a loved one will come up and will pin the rank of second lieutenant on their uniform. And their service to the United States officially begins Now, this ceremony is a defining moment for someone who's now an officer in the U.S. military. It gives them officially their identity, their rank, their orders, their task. And the words of the oath that they take shape who they are and what they're called to do. Now, in some ways, it's hard to imagine anything as different from the power and the polish of a U.S. military commissioning ceremony in Jesus kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane hours before he's arrested and crucified. And yet, Jesus' prayer for his disciples, I think, functions in a similar way. It describes the new identity of his disciples and who they are. And it tells us the mission that Jesus is sending them on. And it prays that God, his Father, would sanctify them or set them apart for this task. Now, I promise that I will not give you three alliterated points every week, but I have three alliterated points for you this morning to help us follow through the task. And so I want to follow this text this morning, and I want us to see how Jesus describes our identity, desires our sanctification, and declares our mission. I want to see these three things this morning. So let's begin with verse 16 where we see Jesus describe a decisive change in who we are as his people. You see there in verse 16, if you look at the text, that Jesus describes his disciples and says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, if you ask yourself, well, what does it mean to be of the world? What does it mean to be of a place? To be of the world is a statement of where we derive our identity. It's where you are from. It's what determines what you do naturally, what goals and patterns and purposes, expectations will determine your actions because of where you're from. 
And I think probably the easiest way to recognize what it means to be from a place or to be of a place is to go live somewhere else for a while. And when you go and live somewhere else, you suddenly realize all of the things you took for granted or did naturally because you were of wherever you grew up. I remember uh, being teased and laughed at mercilessly when I first moved from Ohio to Pennsylvania and referred to soda as pop. Well, I just did it because everyone called it pop in Ohio. But, you know, I could summarize, if we had time, all the jokes I got about pop. Uh, I, of course, teased Lancastrians mercilessly when they would say to me, we're going down the shore this summer. What does it mean to go down the shore? Are you starting at the top and walking to the bottom? Everyone I knew said, we're going to the beach. We realize there's these hilarious things that are part of who we are because of where we're from. But of course, being of a place is not primarily just maybe the words we choose to use, but where we are from, the the country we're from, the culture we're from, the family we're from, also shape our habits, our desires, our goals, what we think is natural. And so when Jesus talks about being of the world, when we talk about someone being of the world, we're describing a person's citizenship, their identity, their character, their purpose is belonging to this world. And we're not saying that our character and our expectations and our habits are this world as opposed to another planet. Being of this world is opposed to being of God. Because in Scripture, to be of the world is to be against submitting to God. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2 makes this clear when it says that every one of us by birth is born dead in trespasses and sins following the course of this world. To be of this world is to be in trespasses and sins. Or maybe you think of 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. It says, do not love the world Or the things in this world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Clearly, this verse is not saying we can't love things that are part of this world as God's creation. It's saying to love this world, to be of this world, is to be opposite the character of God. Opposite the love of God. So when it comes to being of the world or not of the world, the difference is not just what words we use to describe something. The difference is a complete and fundamental difference such that being of the world is to be opposed to submitting to God. Or as James chapter 4 puts it, friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Jesus, however, says that his disciples, with his disciples, there's been a definitive change So that if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, we are no longer of this world. If you think about that, maybe you think of of Jesus, uh, another conversation Jesus had with the man Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wanted to know about spiritual things. And Jesus' summary to him was that if a person would have eternal life, he must be reborn, reborn of the Spirit, not of the world. Or as Paul puts it, As Paul puts it, now, if we have put our faith in Jesus, our home, our citizenship is of heaven, not of this world. 
And I think if you pause for a second and just think about the history of how God has worked in his people, you'll, you'll, you'll quickly realize that God has repeatedly demonstrated that becoming one of his people is to be called out of the world, to be called out of the place where you are from is, is essential to being God's people. So th- think back to the Old Testament. You could, you could think of, of Noah, who's called out, in a sense, to be set apart to the task of building an ark, which everyone around him thought was crazy. He was called to be made fun of, to be mocked, as he did what God called him to do. Or maybe you think of Abraham. Abraham, called out of his homeland, called out to go to the place God called him to go. Or maybe, maybe you think of, um, of uh, Israel, Israel as a nation, called out of Egypt, called out from this land to go to the land that God had promised them. If you fast forward later in the Old Testament, maybe you think of the remnant of God's people living in Babylon and scattered across the lands that God calls out to bring a remnant back to Jerusalem. That remnant is strengthened by God's promises that he will be with them and will bring redemption still. And now Jesus is saying all who respond to his word all who respond in faith to him, all who would receive eternal life are called out. So we are no longer of the world, but are set apart to belong to God, our Savior and our King. At its core, becoming a disciple of Jesus is to die to who we were, to be crucified with Christ, to be called out so that we are no longer of the world, to be set apart to be his. But I want you to notice from this verse, verse 16, if you look back at the verse there, Jesus does not just say what we aren't. He does say we are no longer of the world, but he also tells us what we are. And he does this by telling us where we get our new identity. He says, we are not of the world just as he is not of this world. Later in the prayer, we didn't read these verses, but later in his prayer, Jesus will say that those who have put their faith in him will be united to him will be one with him, that he will be in them. So we who have responded in faith are united in fellowship with God the Father and the Son through the Spirit. So the reason we are no longer of the world is because Jesus is no longer of the world and we are united to him. That's who we are. That's where we get our identity now. And of course, such such a decisive change in identity, no longer of the world, but now being united to Jesus and fellowship with him has to change how we live. If you think about when you get married, when we get married, we go from being single and having an identity perhaps with our family to being married, to be joined with uh, a spouse. And that changes things. It changes how we live, doesn't it? It changes what we like. Just ask any guy who watches period dramas now that he's married guarantee that wasn't what was happening in guys' dorms in college. It's not what we were watching then. It changes what we do with our free time. It changes who it's appropriate for us to spend time with. As a single guy, I know it sure changed what I ate. My wife's cooking was a lot better than what I ate when I, as a single guy. But of course, all of these things that change when we're married, they're not restrictions, They're not things that we have to give up and say, well, I can't do these things now I'm married. No, all of these changes come about in the pure joy of living in united fellowship with our spouse. I still remember, um, 
It was probably a couple of weeks before Kate and I were married, and someone said to my, to my wife, I said, are you sad that you're having to give up your last name and take on a new last name? I was like, well, no, because when you're married, you're not focused on what you have to give up. You're, you, no newlywed I know is kind of morose about what they lost. They're rejoicing in the fellowship of their spouse. They're rejoicing in their fellowship with their wife. And, and so it is with Christ. Yes, we've been called out of the world into union with Christ. And this decisive change of identity impacts who we are and how we live. But it's not a restriction. This isn't something that we mourn what we give up because of this change of identity. No, it's a change of astounding joy because now we're united in fellowship with Jesus, our King and our Savior. Our death to this world is life in Christ. We are no longer of the world because He is not of the world and we are with Him in fellowship with Him through faith. And that is incredible joy. I wonder if maybe we could pause for a minute and just have a quick heart check. I mean, just ask yourself the question, how do I think about being a Christian? How do I think about following Jesus and being united with him, but still being in this world? When I walk through this world as a Christian, how do I identify with Christ? Am I embarrassed to identify with Christ? Do I try to blend in with the world around me as much as possible to avoid being called out? Do I try to live as much like the world as possible, but just be glad that God forgives me so I kind of have a blanket insurance? Do I know that it's good to be a Christian, but I'm still jealous of the world? Or do I find in my identity with Christ an astounding joy that I am no longer of the world, but I'm now defined by my Savior in union and fellowship with Him? Well, this is the description of who we are if we are in Christ. And having talked about our identity, Jesus goes on now in verse 17 to talk about his desire for us. Jesus' desire is that we would be sanctified. You see it there in verse 17 where Jesus prays to his Father, sanctify them, of course that's his disciples, in the truth. Your word is truth. Now if we use the word sanctify or sanctified, that's Maybe a word we hear in Christian theology, but it's probably not a word we use every day. So it's worth stopping to remember what it means to be sanctified. This word is a word that's taken from Hebrew sacrificial vocabulary, from the Old Testament. If you were to flip back to the Old Testament and look at um, God's commands for the tabernacle or the temple and the utensils that were used and the priests that served there, you would find that every priest... And every utensil who served or was used in the tabernacle or the temple was, was sanctified. And what that meant was that it was cleansed, it was purified, and it was set apart for holy use for the service of God. And so a priest, if a priest was going to be set, a, set apart, consecrated to serve in the tabernacle to offer the Lord's offerings. Leviticus 21 says that that priest would be consecrated or sanctified. He would be cleansed and purified and set apart to do the work God called them to do. Or you think of the bowls that were used there. A priest wasn't going to take a bowl that was used in the tabernacle and eat his cereal in the morning. I don't know what cereal the Israelites ate. Maybe it was manna. I don't know. Uh, But you don't use your bowl for cereal because it's been set apart. 
It's been cleansed and purified and set apart for holy service to God. It's not for ordinary use. And so when Jesus prays that his disciples would be sanctified, he's praying that they would be purified, that they'd be cleansed, and that they'd be set apart for service to God. All of that is summarized in this word, sanctify. Well, how does this happen? How does a sinner like you and me become purified, cleansed, and set apart for service to God? Well, Jesus tells us. In verse 17, Jesus prays that his Father would sanctify his disciples in truth. And then he adds, your word is truth. And so we're told here that God's word is the means that God uses to purify and set apart his people. This isn't the only place that God tells us that his word is how his people are purified and sanctified. Maybe you would think of the psalmist who says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or maybe you think of of Paul who tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. See, it's God's word that God uses in the lives of his people to cleanse us and purify us and set us apart as his. But God's word doesn't act alone because look back at your text. Look back at verse 19. Look back at verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus adds, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now your translation uses consecrate and sanctify. It's actually the same word in the Greek, although the translation in English is using two different words. Jesus is saying that he sets himself apart. He dedicates himself to do what God has called him to do. Well, what's that? What is it that God has called Jesus to do? Clearly, just hours before the cross, Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection. And so Jesus claims here that it's his death and resurrection that enables him to sanctify his people. His death covers our sins, and his resurrection enables him to send us his spirit, to live in us and to cleanse us, to wash us, to remake us, to set us apart, to equip us for the task that the Father has called us to do. And consider for a second how important Jesus' prayer is here. Since the first days of Christianity, there have been those who have questioned whether purity and holiness is really that important. Paul, when he was writing the book of Romans, notes that there are those who asked him, well, shouldn't we just let sin abound in our lives so that God's grace can abound all the more? Well, today also, Satan continues to tempt us to love God's forgiveness but not to take as seriously God's call to holiness. But surely J.C. Ryle, the 19th century bishop, summarized Jesus' prayer best when he said this. He said, more holiness, more purity is the very thing to be desired for every servant of Christ. Brothers and sisters, A decisive change has occurred in who we are if we've put our faith in Jesus. And Jesus' prayer, Jesus' desire, is that we would be sanctified, that we would be purified and cleansed so that we might be set apart for his task. And the question for us this morning is, is that our desire too? 
I pray that it is. And if we want to pause for a minute and ask, well, how is it that we are sanctified? How is it that Westminster as a church or you and I individually can be cleansed and sanctified? Jesus has told us. We begin by clinging to the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We begin by believing and resting upon his death and resurrection for our salvation. Because it's his sacrifice that purifies us and sets us apart. That's what verse 19 told us. But then from there, Jesus tells us that the Father sanctifies us in his word, which is truth. And so if you and I would be purified, if we want to be sanctified, that will come by standing on the word of God, by immersing ourselves in the word of God, by returning to the word of God, believing the word of God, submitting to the word of God, living out the word of God. It's the word of God that is the truth that God uses to sanctify us. And that's how Jesus' prayer is fulfilled in your life and in mine. So we've seen Jesus describe our new identity. We've seen his desire that we would be sanctified. Finally, notice as Jesus declares our new mission. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. Just as the Father sent the Son into the world to save his people, so the Son now sends his disciples back into the world. You know, Jesus has said we are no longer of the world, so maybe we might be tempted to think, well, we should be kind of this wholly separate community because Jesus has called us out of the world. We're no longer of the world. But that's not true. Jesus says, I've called you out of the world so that I could send you back into the world. As one commentator said, Christians are not supposed to be some sanctified little circle living in the midst of a ghetto. They are people on a mission whom the Father has sent back into the world that the world might know and believe that he is the Messiah. Think back to our military commissioning for a minute. When a man or woman is commissioned, orders are read, and their life then is lived according to their orders. I was thinking just last week at our missions conference, S.I. Sue, one of our supported missionaries who's a chaplain in the military, was telling me about how uh, he's now at Fort Bragg, which is not where he was last time he was here. I said, well, why the change? And he said, well, I received a promotion, and when I was promoted, I got a new commission, a new order. And so now he's living somewhere else because of those new orders. I think of other members of our congregation. I think of one young man who is living on a submarine. Why? Because those were his orders to serve as a nuclear tech on a submarine. I think of, of another one who has spent time in, in North Africa as an engineer. Why? Because his orders were to go work on a base there in North Africa. A servant of the U.S. military lives, serves, and acts based on his orders. And the same is true of all disciples of Jesus. Our orders are that we have been sent into the world so that the world may believe. And that's our task. And that's not just tasks for missionaries. I want it to be clear that Jesus makes it very clear that he's not just praying for the 12 in this prayer. Back in verses 8 through 10, he made it clear that he is praying for all those who have been given to him. 
In other words, all of his disciples at that time who have been given him are who he's praying for. And then in verse 20, which we didn't read but comes after this, he makes it clear that he's also praying for all those who will believe in his name. So Jesus is praying for his disciples here. Now, of course, not every single one of us is going to be sent into remote corners of the world. But every single one of us is going to be sprinkled like salt from a salt shaker into every corner of society. And so some of you are going to be sprinkled into our public schools. Some of you are going to be sprinkled into law offices. Some of you are going to be sprinkled uh, into business jobs. Some of you will be sprinkled as missionaries into remote corners of the, the world. But wherever God calls each one of us, He is calling us to be sent into the world so that wherever we are, the world might believe who He is through us. Maybe as we come to the end, we could just ask this question. Jesus sends us into the world. What does it mean to be sent? Well, one commentator that I read this past week walks through the Gospel of John and makes a list of the things Jesus says are true of him because he was sent by the Father. And if we've now been sent by the Son, these same qualities should be true of us. So listen to this list. And as I read this list, think carefully about your life and your heart and what ought to be true of us. Here's the list. The one who is sent is to bring glory and honor to the one who sends him. The one who is sent does the will of the sender, not his own will. The one who is sent speaks the words given to him by the one who sends him. The one who is sent is accountable to the sender to do his will and his task. The one who is sent bears witness to the sender and represents the sender accurately to those he is with. The one who is sent knows the sender intimately by living in close relationship with the sender. And finally, the one who is sent follows the sender's example. Can we put ourselves in the position of the one who is sent and remember that our Savior is the one who sends us so that we're to bring glory and honor to Jesus, we're to do the will and the work of Jesus, we're to speak Jesus' words, we're to be accountable to Jesus, we're to bear witness to Jesus and represent Jesus accurately, amongst the world we are around. We're to know Jesus intimately and live in close relationship with Jesus and we're to follow Jesus' example. That's what it means to be sent. What a wonderful description. And so as we close, we can say Christ's disciples are being sanctified, purified, set apart for this task that the world might believe that he is the Savior. Step back. I wonder if any of you who have ever heard a mother praying, a mother praying for her children, if you ever overhear a mother praying, you quickly find out what's on that mother's heart. What is that mother worried about for her children? What does that mother desire for her children? What is that mother hoping for for her children? It all comes out in her prayer. Here in John 17, we don't hear a mother's prayer. 
we hear our master's prayer. And in our master's prayer, we hear Jesus' heart, his desire for his disciples and for his church. Jesus prays for his disciples and for those who will believe in him. And he prays this. He prays that faith in him would decisively change who we are so that we would no longer be of the world, but would now rejoice in our fellowship with the Father and the Son. And given our new identity, Jesus prays for our sanctification, that we would, re, that we would be purified and cleansed and set apart for the new mission, for the new purpose that he has given us, to take God's word to the world that many would believe in his name to the glory and praise of God. This is Christ's desire for us. So it's my prayer for our church and our congregation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words that you have given us. I thank you for the heart that you have for your disciples that's laid bare in your word this morning. I thank you for this description of us that we are no longer of the world because you are no longer of the world and we are united in fellowship with you. I thank you for your desire that we would be sanctified. Father, I pray that you would sanctify us individually and that you would sanctify us as a congregation through your death on the cross for us and through your word. And Father, I pray that we would remember this mission you've sent us on, that we would represent you faithfully wherever you have put us this week. We pray this for your glory and for the salvation of many. In Christ's name, amen.